Hello, everyone, and welcome to this NBA season preview for the 2020-2021 season episode of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. It is Saturday night, December 19th. This is going to be the first of two episodes centering on the NBA season previews, doing them by conference. We'll do the West tonight. We'll do the East for our next episode. And so what we're going to go through is... In my predictions from 1 to 15, in reverse order, we're going to detail their off-seasons, give some analysis, and basically look at their future outlook. You know, the encompassing holistic look at these franchises, again, starting from the 15th seed in my predictions all the way up to the first seed. Again, I'm your host, Brad Clear. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore Clear spelled K-L-I-E-R. And let's not waste any time here. Let's get right into it. And so we'll start with the 15th seed in my Western Conference predictions for the coming season. And that, of course, is the Oklahoma City Thunder, who I think had one of the best offseasons of any team in the league. Now, of course, we all know the massive undertaking of a long-term, extreme draft asset-oriented rebuild process, whatever you want to call it, that OKC is undertaking. And I just think it's staggering when you look through everything that they did uh, trade by trade, asset accumulation, asset acquisition by asset acquisition, building out this already monstrous draft asset portfolio even more, adding these far out future picks, which allows you to have more optionality and flexibility as you're not taking up roster spots early on, and also creating a team where you're going to be able to give your young guys, whether high-level elite young guys like Shea Gilgis-Alexander, mid-level young guys who have a good amount of promise in Lou Dort and Darius Baisley, or lower-level young guys like Ty Jerome, Hamadou Diallo, and the like, what they're doing here is they're going to be a team that is one of the few teams in the league that is going into the season knowing, hey, our intention is to be one of the worst teams in the league and to be in prime position for the draft lottery. And there's a lot of teams, especially in the West, that are going into the season trying to win in a season where the incentives are very much towards, hey, if you're not going to be a top six team, a top seven team right going into the season right off the bat, knowing it, you're probably best off trying to game the lottery this season because poor play is not going to hurt the business that comes with it for a franchise because, frankly, there's not much business to hurt at this point considering the circumstances that we are in and the NBA is in. So, getting back to OKC, they have this focus in mind. I want to go trade by trade here. So, the first trade of this, we'll call it off-season of asset accumulation, for OKC. Let's start. So the first one was Dennis Schroeder to the Lakers for the 20th overall pick and Danny Green. Then we move to the Chris Paul trade. Chris Paul and Abdel Nader to the Phoenix Suns for a, 22, a 2022 first round pick, top 12 protected in 22, and then top 10, then top 8, and then unprotected. Looking at Phoenix, who had a tremendous offseason, that pick is I'd be stunned if that pick does not convey in 2022. So we'll look at that as a first-round pick in 2022. 
Ricky Rubio, who they use with that aforementioned 28th overall pick acquired in the Schroeder trade, plus their already acquired 25th overall pick, they use Rubio alongside those two picks to move up in this draft and go and get Poku at pick 17. And when you're OKC and you have this massive amount of high-level, high-quality draft picks in the coming years, in a draft like this year's, you take the home run swing. And they did with Poku. And look, he had a double-double in the preseason last night. A seven-footer who can handle the ball, uh, run the floor, has a good stroke from three. Obviously, he's raw, he's green, big gangly, needs to build out his frame. But there is massive upside here in Poku. And that's what you come out of this draft with when you're starting a long undertaking like this in a draft that's not as good as other draft classes. You take the big upside swing. So Ricky Rubio, piece that helps them get Poku. Ty Jerome, first round pick last year, 24th overall. Can't hurt to give him a shot. Jalen Lekay, who they then trade to Indiana for TJ Leaf and a second round pick. TJ Leaf, they waived. That was one of their most obvious waves to make in cutting this roster down. So we look at it as a 2022 first, a piece that helps them move up to get Poku, and a future second round pick at this point. Then we add in Kelly Oubre. And look, Kelly Oubre is 24 years old. He's athletic. He's a great offensive player. And could they have probably in a vacuum gotten more for Kelly Oubre than they did? which is a top 20 protected first from Golden State, which is, in my opinion, going to convey as two second-round picks. Yeah, they, they could have gotten a late first-round pick, I'm sure. But the fact of the matter is this. Even though Oubre is 24 and a young player, they don't want to bring him in and help him or have him help, the, help them win games and contribute to winning when they're playing for draft lottery odds at this point. They know they're not going to spend the money to keep him long-term because they don't want to take away their future flexibility this early. So they know, okay, we have a great match here with Golden State with their trade exception. Let's just get it done because we know we're going to move him anyway. So you look at it as a whole. They did give up some value in trading Rubio as part of that move up to get Poku. On his own, they probably could have gotten multiple seconds for Rubio. If they held Oubre longer, they probably could have gotten a late first. But I understand those moves. So Chris Paul and Abdel Nader become Minnesota's 2021 second coming from Golden State. Denver's 2021 second, which was originally part of that trade, along with the top 20 protected first, which will convey, I think, is that Minnesota second. Rubio, who's a piece that helped them move up to get Poku. Ty Jerome, a good young player who they can give a shot to if it doesn't work out. No sweat off their back. A future second from Indiana and a 2022 first from Phoenix. We then move to their next move, which the theme here is the trade exceptions. They create a trade exception of over $7 million there in trading Ubre. We then go to this massive, well, let's go with the three-team trade first. They then make the deal with Dallas and with Detroit, where they send James Johnson's expiring to Dallas. DeLon Wright goes from Dallas to Detroit because they were cutting salary. And OKC ends up with Trevor Ariza, Justin Jackson, a 2023 Dallas second, and a 2026 Dallas second. So right there, you take a big expiring, you get two second-round picks, take a flyer on a young guy in Justin Jackson, and in Trevor Reza, at that $12.8 million expiring, has not reported yet, could be a buyout, but
But if they hold on to him, it's a pretty decent size expiring contract that they can use to take in money that's longer and maybe get a second or something with that. So it's just a way to continuously add assets as you move forward. Two second round picks right there. Then we get to the Drew Holiday trade, which was expanded to be a four-team trade where we incorporated the Denver Nuggets, where they traded their 2023 first lottery protected to the Pelicans to get in at pick 24 and get RJ Hampton. And then Steven Adams being traded to the Pelicans was incorporated into this deal as well. So Steven Adams goes to the Pelicans and then back to OKC, that aforementioned Denver 2023 lottery protected first goes back to OKC. George Hill goes back to OKC. Darius Miller, that $7 million a year deal, he goes back to OKC, basically the human trade exception the Pelicans signed him to be. Charlotte's 2023 second goes back to OKC. Washington's 2024 second goes back to OKC. And then from there, they also have to take in, just because the Pelicans couldn't uh, make the salary match to the extent it needed to with just one player, based off of experience level and whatnot, they get in Kyrie Williams, who they're going to keep, I think, Josh Gray, who they waived, and Zylan Cheatham, who they waived. But what they did was they took in George Hill and all those other players with existing trade exceptions. So at that point, they're trading out Steven Adams. His salary plus his trade kicker, that's $27.5 million. They don't have to match any salary with because they took in those players with trade exceptions. They create a $27.5 million trade exception, which they're able to allow to exist based off of how they did the Al Horford trade. So right there, first two seconds and a massive trade exception for Steven Adams. And George Hill, who I think at some point they're going to turn into a second or two as well. He's a good guy and a valuable player to have for a contending team at some point closer to the trade deadline. I think they're going to move him. And then, of course, we go to the Al Horford trade, where they waited until December 8th, took Vincent Poirier, who they got from Boston, and his $2.6 million, and aggregated that salary to maintain their $27.5 million trade exception. And they trade, they take on Al Horford's deal, they get the 2025 lightly protected first from the Sixers to take him on, they get the 34th pick in the draft, as well, along with it, which they turn to Theo Maladon, who I think so far has shown himself to have some flashes of Tony Parker in his game. They get the rights to Vasa Micic, who the Sixers picked in the very late second round in 2014. One of the top players in Europe, if he comes over, remains to be seen. That's a contributing player into your rotation as soon as he comes over. So right there, a first-round pick far in the future, which... If it conveys, which it very likely will, the only reason it wouldn't convey is if the Sixers, something goes horribly wrong, and they're basically back at the process, which is, even though it's five years away, it's not not something that's likely. It's not impossible, but it's not something that's likely. But again, you have the picks so far out in the future, gives there more room to be uncertainty and risk and value coming to OKC, and to also, again, have that flexibility, not having picks come early, and keep your options open as long as possible. So they get that pick in 2025, the 34th pick, which they turn to Theo Maladon, and the rights to Micic. They send out Danny Green, they send out Terrence Ferguson, 
and they send out Vincent Poirier and allows them to maintain that Stephen Adams trade exception. And of course, Danilo Gallinari, they do a sign-in trade there with Atlanta just to create a $19.5 million trade exception. So now, as a result of all of those moves, for OKC, they're looking at a $27.5 million, $27 million trade exception, a $19.5 million trade exception, and an over $7 million trade exception, Ubre, Gallinari, and Adams. That Adams trade exception exceeds the amount of cap space that any other team in the league has. Right there, three major opportunities to take in money that assets can be attached to. George Hill, they'll get assets for. Trevor Reza, they if they don't buy him out, they could add him into a deal, take back longer money, get some assets with that. There is plentiful optionality for them to add more assets. They have a large 17 first-round pick uh, supply coming to them through 2026. Of course, all the swaps as well, the added seconds in here as well. And you look at their roster, they're going to be at the bottom of the West, in my opinion. They're, and I, I think they're going to be able to turn Al Horford into something that has... The ability to bring you back an asset after this season. You're giving tons of opportunity to Shea Gilgis-Alexander, to Lou Dort. I think Darius Baisley is going to be in the running for most improved player of the year. I'm really interested to see how Poku does against NBA-level talent on a consistent night-to-night basis. I've loved what I've seen from Theo Maladon thus far. I like Hamadou Diallo. I, there's no reason to not give Ty Jerome a shot, see if you have something in him as well. I think there's just so much to like about how, how OKC went about this this offseason. They have to be one of the best setup teams for this coming decade and for the long term. All those trade exceptions for the next year, the young players they have in place, the fact they're going to be bad and have the ability to get a high-level player in a very good draft next year, they're going to have multiple first-round picks and swap options dependent on the year every year through 2026 at this point. They are basically doing what every GM who's not on a contending team wishes they could do, and they're doing it to the greatest extent possible. I think they're going to be the 15th team and the worst team in the West, and I don't think they'll be the worst team in the NBA, but I think they will be second or third worst. But overall, an A grade for OKC for this offseason. And I am really intrigued to see, first off, how much better Shea Gilgis-Alexander gets, how much better Darius Baisley and Lou Dork get, and really just to see how they can leverage these options in trade exceptions and veteran players to add more assets. Just a tremendous, tremendous offseason. And I guess I'll add one last thing there with OKC. They, they waived TJ Leaf and Admiral Schofield. Admiral Schofield, they got with Washington when they traded Cassius Winston and a future second, Cassius Winston, who they picked 53rd, to, to Washington for Admiral Schofield in the 32nd pick. They picked Beat Krejci. He's a stash coming off a torn ACL. Didn't really, you know, wasn't crazy about that pick. But again, I think their last cut before they get down to the 15-person um, roster, I think Isaiah Roby is going to be a cut. I like their addition of Frank Jackson on a non-guaranteed or partially guaranteed deal as well, and I think um, I think Chris Chiozo, who just got waived by the Nets, would be an interesting addition for them as well. So, 
again, lots of options. They really they really took advantage of the bottom of the roster and the 20 roster spots you can have throughout the offseason, signing and waving guys like Melvin Frazier and Antonius Cleveland so they could be on their G League team. So, again, Moses Brown's on a two-way. Josh Hall's on a two-way. So much to like here from OKC. Next, we go to the team I would say will finish 14th in the West, and that's the Sacramento Kings. I think I may be down on them more so than others. I guess we'll start with their draft. Tyrese Halliburton at 12 was a steal. Halliburton is going to be such a solid, dependable player for so long. Contributes defensively, can shoot, can pass. Really, really, I like what on on defense especially, he's so great at getting steals. But just overall, defensively, he's going to contribute on the ball, off the ball, shooting, passing, playmaking, creating, good size. It's all there. And... He's going to be playing, I think, next to De'Aaron Fox as their two-guard long-term. And the fact that he was available to them at 12 is really astounding. They came into the draft with the 35th pick. They traded down from that 35th pick to 40 with Memphis. Got a future pick back there. Got um, got Robert Woodard in there, a nice 3 and D prospect. Then you throw in Jahimius Ramsey as well. Again, a guy who you look at and you say, all right, he can contribute on both sides of the ball as well, and you get both those guys in the mid-second round. I think right there, getting that extra pick, getting two contributor potential players in the second round, getting what may be the steal of the whole draft in Halliburton at 12, again, he's just such a dependable player. You can see it already. The size, the playmaking, the shooting, the defense, the passing, it's all there. It's all there. I love his fit there with De'Aaron Fox. Now, we go to their overall offseason, and the first thing you have to mention for new head of basketball operations, Monty McNair, is the Bogdan Bogdanovich offer sheet. Uh, there was the botch with the Bucks sign-in trade. They did not match the deal that the Hawks gave Bogdanovich four years at $72 million with a trade kicker in there as well. I don't look at that deal as above market value for Bogdanovich. I really don't. Maybe slightly by maybe a million or a million and a half a year, but that's that's marginal. I, I look at that as being relatively market value. I also look at it as it seemed like it got to the point where he didn't want to be there anymore. And you also have to look at it as they, to me, looking where Sacramento is, they seem to be a team who's going to have to take a step or two back slightly to make those strides forward that myself and many other people envisioned for them a couple years ago. They went out, they made veteran signings, they added depth, it didn't work out. I think Buddy Heald, that's a guy that they should move. Again, that's a large contract they signed him to last year. He's clearly unhappy there. And I, again, with looking at Fox and Halliburton as such a great fit in that backcourt, it's only going to lead to more issues as far as Heald and his playing time. So I think Heald is a guy they have to get out of there when a good offer comes along. But going back to Bogdanovich, again, I don't think that was an above-market-value deal by an egregious amount, maybe marginal. So then you look at it as, all right, he's in his later 20s. Maybe they want their timeline to be... Maybe that maybe he doesn't quite met, uh, match up with that timeline. They have Halliburton in there, part of their core now, and you look at their core at this point being Fox, Halliburton, and Marvin Bagley. He's older than those guys. 
And you look at it also, maybe the fact that there's a trade kicker would throw off some teams in trading for him. I don't think that would have been the case. But I do think that, I don't think they wanted to take up a lot of minutes, especially at those wing spots, with Halliburton coming in, with Heald being unhappy, creating more, I guess, surplus at those spots, and making minutes tougher to come by. I think that they just wanted to move on based off of the fact that if this was the deal that Bogdanovich was getting and the fact that it was barely above market value, this this is a tradable contract. To an extent, every contract is tradable, but this contract was definitely tradable. I personally would have matched it just because I think that, again, you don't give up the asset if you don't have to, and you're going to be able to get something for it down the road. I think Bogdanovich is a very good player, but it clearly seems to me that they're probably shifting the timeline of what this team is going to be. He didn't quite fit that. They didn't want to take on big money when De'Aaron Fox just got his big five-year max deal. Marvin Bagley is going to be coming up for a deal soon. And then you still have the big money coming to Harrison Barnes as well. And if you can't move him, the big money that's going to Buddy Heald. I look at the rest of this team. Hassan Whiteside as a very cheap veteran minimum signing. Sure, why not? I look at Frank Kaminsky, who they waived today. Uh, Me Too was interesting in the preseason. And Rashawn Holmes was one of the most improved players in the entire league last year. I'm very excited to see if he can keep up that form this year. I think Nemanja Bjelica, I look at the Sixers with their $8.1 million trade exception. I think he's a very strong trade candidate there. I look at this Kings team, and I don't see a competitive team. I see a team that needs to get to the top of the draft and add a major difference maker to build out this core moving forward. I'm not sold on Marvin Bagley yet as far as what he brings, as far as if he can stay healthy. Halliburton and Fox, you have a dynamite long-term backcourt right there. They did well in the draft. Monty McNair is a very smart executive. The Bogdanovich is going to be the defining part of their offseason. I would have matched. I get why they didn't. But looking at this Kings team, they're kind of in a state of flux. They're going to have to figure out what exactly they are, and then they're going to have to make the moves that go along with it. But like I said, Buddy Heald, when a good offer comes along, and Nemanja Bielitsa to me stand out as very easy trade options. Maybe they could turn Glenn Robinson into a second. They signed him this offseason. But as a whole, there's a lot of work to be done with the Kings. I think they come in there as the 14 seed. Next, we move to the team I have as the 13 seed in the West, and that's the Minnesota Timberwolves. Gerson Rosas, the new president, basketball operations in his second year there. You know, there's been a lot of turnover with this team. He's put in his stamp on his team, on this team. I think at this point, what they've come out as is unless Anthony Edwards or Jarrett Culver becomes a stud, like a real high-level all-star stud, this team's going to be stuck in the middle for the long term. They don't have money as far as cap space really to that much at all at this point moving forward. D'Angelo Russell is on his over $100 million million deal. Carl Anthony Towns is on his max. Ricky Rubio, they got him in that trade with Poku I mentioned earlier, $17 million for two more years. Malik Beasley, they just signed four years, $60 million, but that fourth year partially guaranteed. So it's more of a three-year, $43 million deal, but again... That's a substantial $15 million a year or so deal. Juan Hernan Gomez, who I like, they got him in that trade last year, part of that multi-team Covington trade. They got him 
and Beasley for the first with Denver. They got Hernan Gomez back on a three-year deal at $21 million. You know, and I look at the four, that's a weak spot on their roster. So I don't mind that re-signing, but again, that's $7 million a year. And so you look at this team, there's a lot of bodies on this team now. You have a really, really crowded backcourt with Russell and Rubio and Beasley, who Beasley, just looking at what he brought to this team last year, he was really lighting it up and scoring a ton of points for them last year for the half year or so that he was on the team. So if he can keep playing at that level moving forward, then yeah, that's a good deal. But again, you have a lot of chefs in the kitchen there with Russell and Rubio and Beasley. Jarrett Culver was a top 10 pick just a year ago. You're looking at him having to be your Paul George type, who's a really strong two-way perimeter-oriented player defensively and as a guy who can bring offense. Anthony Edwards, the first overall pick this year, you know, I, I think that LaMelo Ball was the guy that they should have picked there. I do. Just because I think... If they were going to bring in Rubio anyway, they like to have two ball handlers with Ryan Saunders there. I think LaMelo Ball is a better prospect than Anthony Edwards. But again, you look at that, that's right there, five players who are really in your backcourt who you need to get minutes for. The best defender on this team is Josh Okoji. I like Josh Okoji, and he's going to be at you. He's going to have to play at the three for you. But in, a, but in an ideal situation, he's a guy who comes off the bench. This team is going to have to become an all-offense team unless, again, Culver becomes that two-way stud or Edwards becomes a two-way stud and becomes a high-level player. You also have to recognize then, too, they're out their first-round pick in next year's draft unless it's in the top three as part of, that, as part of the D'Angelo Russell deal with the Warriors. So I don't mind the talent mix that's there. I just think that defensively, it's going to be very limited. And long-term, I struggle to see, outside of the two Culver and Edwards options of them becoming high-level players, I struggle to see what takes them to a consistent playoff level or a contending level. They're far from it, but they're a very expensive team already. I want to get back to their draft night as well. So they came into draft night with the first pick, 17th pick and the 33rd pick and they came out of it with Anthony Edwards Leandro Balmoro and Jaden McDaniels that's not a bad haul but coming in with 117 and 33 at one point having 125 28 and 33 it could have been better not Again, not that it was bad, but it could have been a better draft for them. I think it was an okay draft, not a very good one. I think then looking through the rest of this team, I, I like Jake Lehman for them. I really do like what he brings for them as a guy who comes off the bench and can provide offense and shooting. I like Jared Vanderbilt. They just waived Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, which I was surprised by. I think he is someone who is going to be picked up relatively quickly by another team. I know he can't shoot, but I look at the four. That's their weakest spot on the team. He's an energy guy who can rebound and play some defense as well. I think just looking at it as a whole, the Timberwolves didn't have a bad offseason. They just didn't have a great offseason when they really had the ability to have one. And long-term, 
Long term, I'm just a little concerned as to what their ceiling may be just based off of how much they've not locked themselves in, but more or less restricted their avenues to adding talent as far as cap space is concerned. And if they don't get their pick in this coming draft and it goes to the Warriors, draft capital is concerned as well. Now, the next team here, the team who I think will finish 12th in the West, and that's the San Antonio Spurs. And time is coming due on the San Antonio Spurs as far as what they really want to do with DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge. To me, it's almost been as if they're treading water for these last couple of years. They've had the ability to trade DeRozan or trade Aldridge. They've decided not to play some young guys instead of them, go really all in on the draft, and they've kind of... They've kind of straddled that line as far as we don't want to be a total tear down young team and build it up, but we don't also want to add a ton of veterans and a ton of money to our team more so than we already have. Now, their first round pick this year, they come in there and they get Devin Vassell. That's a perfect fit for them. Really strong wing uh, presence for them. And when I looked at this draft, to me, he was the perfect fit for the Spurs. And I was I, I kind of earmarked him for them all along in this process. I look at Vassell as a guy, a wing, good size, can really be a scorer offensively and can contribute in lots of ways outside of that as well. Um, can even block some shots, get some steals, be a good defensive presence, does a little bit of everything. Really does a little bit of everything, a very Spurs-type player. But Yaka Pirtle, they re-signed on a three-year deal for $26 million. DeJounte Murray, he's got his four-year extension kicking in this year. You still have, I thought, a good draft haul from last year in Lucas Sambanich and Keldon Johnson. Trey Jones at 41 in the draft. I like that move. Drew Eubanks, they also got in the second round as well. So a very solid draft. Not a draft that's going to, in my opinion, greatly change their overall outlook short and long term, but... Very solid second round work. A guy who fits perfectly for them in the first round. Pirtle for three years at $26 million. I don't mind it. It's a little bit pricey, but I don't mind it. But you look at where this Spurs team is. I will say one under-the-radar move they made that I really like, just because I like this guy as a player. Keita Bates-Diop, who they signed on a two-way deal. I'm a huge fan of his. He was on Minnesota. Ended up in Denver as part of that Covington, Beasley, Hernan Gomez, Capella trade. That's a guy who I think has some talent and is a guy who, if you're only spending a two-way spot on him, that's a very good use of a two-way spot and a guy who I think, not anything special, but I think he'd be a nice lower bench contributor for a team long-term. But the overall story here with the Spurs is this. Like I mentioned, they've kind of been treading water. I really like Lonnie Walker. I really like Derek White. I really like DeJounte Murray. But DeMar DeRozan, he's in his last year of his deal. LaMarcus Aldridge is 35. He's looked old and slow in the preseason. Rudy Gay's 34 in the last year of his deal. Patty Mills is 32 in the last year of his deal. These are veterans that if they want to move off of them, they can get value back. They have good and interesting young players. I mentioned Devin Vassell. Derek White, DeJounte Murray, Lonnie Walker, Lucas Samanich, Keldon Johnson, Trey Jones, and Drew Eubanks. They have good young players. They just need to commit one way or the other to what their long-term plan is. 
I think they're just stuck in the middle, not a team that is going to be a playoff factor. And their real hope here, if they don't make a definitive directional decision either way, is can they sneak into the play-in? I don't think they do with how good the West is. So I, I do think that at this point, it's it's time to see what you can get for DeRozan. It's time to see what you can get for Aldridge. It's time to see what you could get for Rudy Gay and Patty Mills. And I know Greg Popovich is one of the greatest coaches in history. I know he's older. Maybe he doesn't want to undergo a strong rebuilding project. But I don't really see a long-term path for this team that makes more sense. So I'm very intrigued to see more so than their play. This season, I just want to see, do they make a definitive move? Because long-term past this season, assuming that none of those veterans are back, the only player making double digits in salary is DeJounte Murray. There's a lot of cap space and optionality there. They could really turn this whole thing over and have a lot of flexibility moving forward. So that is where my intrigue comes with the Spurs. Of basically a run-of-the-mill offseason, they have a solid draft. They don't make any drastic moves either way, and they're kind of stuck in the middle. Now we go to the team who is one of the most interesting teams in the league and who I think will finish 11th in the West, and that is the New Orleans Pelicans. The Pelicans are in such an interesting spot. They're kind of going for it, and they, they clearly want to win with the moves they've made. They have a lot of good young players coming up in terms of Lonzo Ball. What, what's his second contract going to look at look like? Are we looking at a four-year deal for about $64 million, $70 million, $60 million? Josh Hart, is he a four-year deal at $48, $52 million? We have Brandon Ingram signed on a five-year deal for $158 million. We have Zion at the four. We just made a move for Steven Adams. We have Jackson Hayes, who, based on that Steven Adams move and that they're trying to win, looks like he's probably more of a trade piece for them long-term. Do they keep J.J. Redick? Is he someone they move eventually? Kira Lewis, I thought, was a really strong first-round pick for them. I just think, looking at this Pelicans team, let's take a step back here. Let's look at their specific moves they made in the offseason. So we have to start, obviously, with the Drew Holiday trade. I know last year, David Griffin came in. They came in. They said, hey, we want to win. They were doing very well during the season. They were very bad in the bubble. But they came in and they said, hey, this is Drew Holiday's team. We want to have Drew as our long-term franchise piece here. Or, excuse me, their short-term franchise piece with Zion as their long-term franchise piece. But it got to the point here, the obvious move was trading him. He could be a free agent after the year. There's a lot of value for him to have been had, and obviously they leveraged that to the greatest extent possible when they finally said, hey, th this is a no-brainer. we got to trade him. And so I mentioned that it was part of that overall four-team trade with OKC and Denver and obviously Milwaukee. But you look at what uh, New Orleans took in, specifically for Drew Holiday, they got what at the time looked like could be interesting picks just because Giannis had not signed the Supermax yet. Now he has. But Milwaukee's 2025 first and 2027 first and swaps in 2024 and 2026 and then got Indiana's first from Milwaukee. They got that for Malcolm Brogdon and they traded that to Denver for that 2023 lottery protected first that was part of the Steven Adams package 
So again, a substantial, massive draft pick haul that could be really valuable long-term, but again, what it more so does is, similar to OKC, it increases this incredibly extensive stockpile of future picks and future swaps that really are clearly being done, especially from New Orleans' standpoint, to put them in position to be able to trade for whatever star player comes to the market. Now, looking at that specifically, before I continue with their offseason, to me, what their moves come across as is they are biding their time until Bradley Beal potentially becomes available in a trade. We'll get into him in the Eastern Conference episode, but I I just kind of think it's a matter of time before Beal requests a trade. Not that it's coming this season, but I think next offseason or during next season, 2021 offseason, 2021, 2022 season, I think it's going to happen. But I want to look short-term here. I tend to think they would make sense for a James Harden trade. I'm not saying it would happen or it's likely to happen or whatever, but I do think they make sense. I think James Harden ends up in Miami, but they make sense. Zion is this incredible young player, a freak of nature, but like a lot of people will say, it is possible that he is a player who deals with injuries for a long time and maybe incurs a substantial one at some point. In the short term here, while he's on his rookie contract, you have all these picks. You have Jackson Hayes, you have Lonzo Ball, you have Josh Hart, you have Kira Lewis, you have Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Brandon Ingram, James Harden, Zion, Eric Bledsoe, who they got in that Drew Holiday trade, Steven Adams. It's a pretty nice group right there. And I think that vaults them into a playoff-level team. And players of James Harden's caliber do not come around often. And I think it takes advantage. It's almost a weird kind of football way where you take advantage, obviously, even though you can go over the cap and we we all know that. I just think while Zion is young and has the lowest amount of wear and tear on his body, that maybe it's not a bad idea to see if you can go all in right now before Zion's body potentially breaks down. I know that's a bit of a negative scenario or idea as far as Zion is concerned, but Zion's a special player already. He's an all-star caliber player already. He's tremendous. This team with James Harden on it would be tremendous. I really believe that. Not saying it will happen. I highly doubt it would, but I do think they would make sense as a Harden destination. Now, going back to their overall offseason, I mentioned that Drew Holiday trade, Eric Bledsoe coming in. I think Bledsoe, you know, he gets a bad rap for his performance in the playoffs, but that's a high-level defensive point guard who still has the ability to shoot from the outside. I think Lonzo Ball, to me, I think he could be someone who is in the discussion for most improved player this year. I am a fan of Lonzo Ball. I think we could be seeing him being a guy who flirts with a who is a guy who has a lot of triple-doubles over the course of the season. Josh Hart, I like a lot. Brandon Ingram is an all-star caliber player, was tremendous last year. Really just tremendous to see his three-point shooting gets that level and just all around being a mini-me Kevin Durant. Now, I wanted to bring up the Steven Adams trade. I mentioned earlier what it entailed based off of the um, OKC offseason recap. But I'm not sure I'm that crazy about the trade for New Orleans. They then 
signed Adams to a two-year extension for about $17 million a year. And I think I would have preferred New Orleans to go after Aaron Baines just to have the ability to have a center who could space the floor more with Zion there. I think what it shows me that they went out and got Adams is that giving up that first, the two seconds, and giving him the two-year extension is they're going to put the ball in Zion's hands on the perimeter a lot more often. And they're going to see what Zion can be as a perimeter creator for himself. You're going to see, I think you're going to see Zion in pick and rolls with Brandon Ingram. I think they're going to be having an offense where you give the ball to Zion and he can go downhill from the perimeter. I I don't think this team has enough shooting and I think they're going to struggle in the half court. And I, I would think that with Stan Van Gundy now there as the head coach, I would think that they may not play as fast as you would think they would otherwise just based off of his coaching style. But I think the issues with shooting and with spacing and with half-court offense are definitely valid. I personally think that Zion probably would be really unique and best off for a five-man lineup playing the five, but they're clearly not going that direction. And not only that, have a guy at the five who is not going to provide you with floor spacing. However, he will provide you with strong interior defense, with strong rebounding, and just in a physical presence will create spacing right there. I mean, you're going to be running into picks set by Zion and Steven Adams over a game. You're going to get beat up. I think another thing with the Pelicans is their depth. Now, you have Steven Adams. You have Jackson Hayes. You have Zion. Uh, Nico Melli can shoot off the bench at the four. Uh, you then look at the backcourt. You have Lonzo, Eric Bledsoe, J.J. Redick, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Kira Lewis, Josh Hart. I mean, there's a lot of talent there. I think Nikhil Alexander-Walker, 17th overall pick last year, I like him, whether there were struggles or not. I think that's an interesting young player who can improve. How many minutes is he going to get? They signed Billy Hernan Gomez. They signed Sindarius Thornwell. Wenyon Gabriel, he had to play big minutes for Portland last year. These are nice minimum signings to fill out their overall depth, but... I look at this team, I think Brandon Ingram, especially with Drew Holiday not being there anymore, I think we're going to see Ingram take another leap and continue to be this all-star caliber player. I think we're going to see even more of an offensive output from him. I think we're going to see a similar or better level of three-point shooting. I think we may even see a more efficient Brandon Ingram offensively as well. I am very, very in on Brandon Ingram, and I, I really see here, especially with Drew not being there, I mean, this is a huge opportunity for Ingram to continue to improve and continue to be that elite-level all-star player for them on the perimeter and to form that dynamic, dynamic duo between him and Zion. So I think he's going to be... um, I think he's going to be a player for them who's going to continue to improve even more so than the huge improvement we saw from him last year, especially now with the five-year, $158 million deal. I liked their selection of Kira Lewis at uh, 13 in the first round. I kind of look at Lewis as being a lesser version of De'Aaron Fox, a ton of speed and playmaking ability, um, and someone who's really tough to defend when they're driving to the rim. Shooting needs to improve, but I really like that pick there. 
And then, and then you look at, I guess, at their overall draft. You know, they, they traded that pick to Denver. Uh, the aforementioned pick with RJ Hampton and then was traded for Steven Adams. And you you look at the work they did last year in the second round. You, you have D.D. Lozada, who, again, does not look like they're going to be bringing him over. He's going to be playing in Australia again. So to sum it all up, the Pelicans are a team who are clearly trying to win, who are going to struggle with floor spacing and not having enough shooting. Not crazy about the Steven Adams move. They kind of seem to be in limbo until a star player like Bradley Beal becomes available. They're biding their time, being competitive, but not being super competitive, but not being a bad team. I think if things go very well, they could be in the play-in for sure. I mean, at 11, I think I could see them, if things go really well, maybe they can get up even to 9, be in contention for 8. Again, they were very, very good before the bubble last year. So there's upside to this team. I just think it's going to have a lot of the problems it had last year, and you don't have Drew Holiday there, so that makes you worse off right there. It just feels like they're biding their time until they can make a star trade, and they just have to rectify the fact that this team just does not have enough shooting. When you look at it, they have to rely on J.J. Redick to such a strong extent to create that floor spacing when he's in the game. So to be determined, I want to see the improvement that will come out of their young players, but... A very interesting team the Pelicans are in a very, very interesting spot right now. Now we go to the team who I have finishing 10th in the West, and that's the Golden State Warriors. They were dealt a very bad hand with the unfortunate injury to Klay Thompson. That, to me, took them from being a title-contending team to I don't think they're going to be a playoff team. Now, of course, the Warriors, it's so fluid in the West. Maybe things go totally right for them, and they play incredibly well, and they're as high as 4 or 5. But as of now, I have them at 10. James Wiseman is the second pick. Again, a very safe pick. I'm not super crazy about him. I think he'll be a solid player, but not a special or exceptional player. Kelly Oubre, I think that move was great because you keep your first round pick, trade a couple seconds, and in getting Oubre, that was really the most obvious use of that trade exception with his salary there at about $14 million. And the Iguodala trade exception being worth about $17 million, that was the most obvious match there. Keep your first round pick, and if nothing else, I think a huge, huge thing here, Kelly Oubre is 24. We've seen in preseason this year, and we saw it last year, and we saw it the year before. Kelly Oubre is a very, very strong offensive player, very athletic, and especially with Klay Thompson not playing this year, he's going to have a ton of opportunity to be a go-to scorer on the perimeter for this team. And I think he can handle it. I really do. But you get him in there at age 24 for two seconds, you now have the ability to sign him long-term after this season. And I expect them to. I'd be surprised if they don't. I think looking at Clay Thompson specifically, so with him obviously having dealt with the ACL injury and now having to deal with the Achilles, he's on a five-year deal for $190 million. And he will not have played for the first two years of them. And when he comes back, he's going to be 32 years old, coming off of two massive injuries, not having played in multiple years. I think what that does is, you know, you hope Clay can return to form, but what it does is it makes that five-year, $190 million deal, it makes, to me, it very hard to see, one, 
him living up to the value of that contract, even if he comes back and can still be a very good shooter and a good defender. But two, at this point, until we see him come back and be the player he was or close to it, it makes that contract one of the worst in the league. Now, looking at the uh, signings they made this offseason, I think the Kent Bazemore signing, they got him in there at the minimum, perfect signing. 3 and D veteran is a guy that, frankly, every team in the league could use. You get him in there on a minimum, especially having lost Clay, needing to bolster your wing rotation, makes all the sense in the world. He, he looked pretty solid last year. He was on the Kings last year. Was not bad. So, again, looking at him, looking at Brad Wanamaker, he's a guy the Celtics had consistently in their rotation last year. You have Wanamaker in the backcourt now. You have Damian Lee. Jordan Poole was bad as a rookie, but you picked him at the end of the first round. Maybe he can improve. Marquise Chris was very good for the Warriors last year. You have him in there on a minimum to provide depth in your front court. So looking at that, I mentioned those guys right there. You look at the rest of this roster. Andrew Wiggins, what is he going to bring you? I, I think it's you're, you're definitely going to get scoring. You're going to get scoring, and you're going to get that in the stat sheet. Will it be efficient? I don't know. How good will he be from three? I don't know. Can he be a high-level defensive contributor? Again, I don't know. Lots of unknowns there. But again, it helps you. If nothing else, well, obviously, you're, you're stuck with Wiggins. But if nothing else, it allows you to have depth at that wing, in those wing spots. But I mentioned there, I really liked the Bazemore signing. I really liked the Brad Wanamaker signing. Marquise Chris there, Damian Lee. Eric Pascal had a great rookie season. They're very, very high on Alan Smelagic. Will he be a contributor? We will see. Kevon Looney, again, when he's healthy, is a guy who can be a very strong, big, especially defensively, coming off the bench. There's a solid bench here. Wiseman, if he can be what a lot of people have projected him to be, that's a guy who can be a consistent starting level player. I think he'll be solid. Draymond, I think we're going to see the same player that we saw relatively from him last year. So what this really all comes down to is this. They made good use of the trade exception, didn't use the MLE, kept their first round pick, didn't trade down from two, which we don't know what the offers were, but they're could have been something in a draft that's not that great. But it comes down to this. Will they give Steph Curry the massive, massive three-year extension that basically comes out to about $52 million a year? And second, Steph Curry is going to have to ball out this season and carry a significant load for this team. Because when Curry is off the floor, and this is really why I have them at 10, I struggle to see how they're going to generate enough offense without Curry on the court or if Curry's not playing in that specific game. And I'm not sure it's sustainable. Now, obviously, Curry's one of the five best players in the league and is the best point guard uh, in the NBA. Really is. But can the Warriors rely on Curry to such an extreme extent with him coming off of an injury without really... No, I think Oubre will be a good perimeter scorer for them, but they don't have a high-level shot creator on this team at an elite all-star level. Steph Curry is one of the best in the league, but there's no player outside of Curry who is an elite high-level shot creator for them on the perimeter. So I think overall they did the best they could with the Thompson situation. I like the signings they made for their bench. I really like their bench. 
I think they're going to struggle without Curry being in the game. The Wiseman pick was fine. It was safe. He'll be solid. I'm not crazy about it, but again, a solid pick. They did the best they could with their offseason, and I think the Ubre move specifically is the best move they made. I think that was a fantastic value, great use of the trade exception, and a player who they will and should sign and have their long term. So I have them at 10 again just because I'm not that confident in their ability to generate offense without Curry on the floor or if he's out for that game. Next we go to the team I have projected at 9, and that is the Memphis Grizzlies. Memphis Grizzlies, they had a great season last year, above expectation. They have a team where their front office with Zach Kleiman and Rich Cho, they take advantage of all avenues to improve and to add optionality and assets. They use all 20 roster spots in the offseason. They get a ton of trade exceptions. They add and maneuver with second-round picks. They came into this draft with just the 40th pick. They came out of it with Desmond Bain, with Xavier Tillman, they signed Killian Teal on a two-way contract. They signed Sean McDermott on a two-way contract. They brought back Jonte Porter. They brought back John Conchar. They had a very good offseason. I think let's look at their draft specifically. They get up there to pick 30. They get Desmond Bain for the price of second-round picks in a couple years, two of them going to Boston. That trade took a little while to announce. You know, as a lot of other people noted, it seemed like maybe Ennis Kanter would be going to them from Boston. He ended up in Portland. But Desmond Bain, you look at Desmond Bain, he's a guy who's just going to provide you a ton of offense off the bench. A pure scorer in the purest form. And to get up there to get him a guy who I think will be a pretty strong difference maker for them off the bench, and to get up there and get him with the, for the price of two future seconds that are a couple years away, I think that was a great value move there. They move up from 40 to 35, get Xavier Tillman, who I think was a first-round talent. They signed him to a deal that's you know pretty strong guaranteed money for a second-round pick. Three years fully guaranteed, but the fourth year is where that tailed off. And then you get Killian Teal, who I think had it not been for health concerns and injury, he should have been a second-round pick. Getting him in there on a two-way, that's a very strong use of a two-way spot. And then obviously looking at the rest of the offseason— DeAnthony Melton, who you know I've been very high on, have said it multiple times on this podcast, they're able to re-sign him on a four-year deal that very smartly is, in terms of salary, is descending per year, gives them more flexibility moving forward, makes his contract more attractive potentially for a trade, but you get him back in there on a four-year deal at $35 million. I think that's pretty solid value, below what a mid-level would have been per year, but I think that's very strong value to get him in there on about $8 million or so a year, a little over that. And then you look at the rest of the moves. I just mentioned they re-signed Jonte Porter. They waive him to be able to bring him back on a multi-year deal. They give him three years, $6 million, $2.8 million guaranteed. Again, a guy they took a flyer on. He was out with the injury, didn't, go, didn't get drafted. A guy who a lot of people were high on before the injury for the 20, uh, 2019 draft. John Conchar, they give him a four-year deal for $9 million. $5.8 million of that is guaranteed. So very low cost, very basically, if you look at the ratio of upside to downside, upside outweighs it. Good maneuvering as far as waiving guys and being able to use um, the avenues at their disposal, parts of their MLE and whatnot to be able to re-sign these guys. Because we look at it, 
to be able to give the money they did to Xavier Tillman, $4.6 million guaranteed, and a team option on the fourth year. John Conchar, I mentioned the $5.8 million guaranteed over four years. Jonte Porter, the $2.8 million guaranteed over three years. They used, not all of it, obviously, but a portion of their mid-level exception to be able to re-sign those three guys. Because, again, they don't have bird rights on those three guys. And, again, like I mentioned, they used up a lot of these spots they have available to them in the offseason. And even though it got pricey, they stayed below the tax. Now, Mario Hazonia, he came in in that trade with Desmond Bain and Boston and his canter. Him and Marco Goduric were obviously going to be the guys waived. But you look at this team now, they made the trade last year, where they sent out Solomon Hill and Jay Crowder and Andre Godala, and they got back Justice Winslow and um, Dion Waiters and James Johnson. They flipped James Johnson for Gorgie Jang. They basically gave up a good amount of space for this year to be able to get Justice Winslow in. He dealt with injuries. I'm not sure if he even played a game for them last year, but I'm really intrigued to see how does Justice Winslow fit with this team. Because the thing with Winslow is the contract's not bad at $13.3 million a year, and he's a good point forward who can really play make for you. But with the injury concerns that we see year in and year out, at this point, until I see otherwise, it kind of seems to an extent that the idea of Winslow may be better than the reality. But at the same time, if you're to look at, all right, let's put a five-man group out there. I'm intrigued by John Morant, Dylan Brooks, Justice Winslow, Jaron Jackson Jr., or and Jonas Valanciunas, or putting Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson Jr. in there as well. I think that's intriguing. Uh, one thing that's really key here with Memphis is... There is incredibly strong depth here. We look at the five. Jonas Valanciunas, they signed him on that three-year deal for pretty substantial money, making 15 mil this year. Gorgie Jang's a fine backup there, an expensive one, but a fine backup there. John Morant, obviously, you want to see him continue to improve year over year. He's going to be a perennial all-star sooner than later. But you look behind him, Tyus Jones, they signed him at basically the mid-level exception value last year. You know, I think they probably would wish they had that one back just because of how good Melton has been. But I, I like seeing Melton off the ball more for this Memphis team. You look past that, you look again. Dylan Brooks, Grayson Allen, he can shoot off the bench. Desmond Bain, he's a guy who can score all around and be a strong offensive force for you off the bench. And all you gave up to get him was a second and 23 and a second and 24. Kyle Anderson, slow-mo, again, solid player at a reasonable salary there at the three. Just mentioned Justice Winslow, and then you go past that. I mentioned John Conchar. I mentioned Jonte Porter um, as guys who can play in the four and the five and whatnot. But Brandon Clark, to me, is a total stud. I love Brandon Clark, one of the best picks in last year's draft. And Jaron Jackson Jr., to me, he's Al Horford 2.0. And I think what you can see emerging for this Grizzlies front office in their drafting is one thing that's very important to them is college production. And that trend continued this year, and we saw it last year as well. But just looking at it overall, they stay below the tax. They added, they came to the draft with just the 40th pick, and they came out of it with Xavier Tillman, Desmond Bain, and Killian Teal on the two-way. That's great work. They have some interesting lineups they can deploy this year. They have depth. They have, to me, I, I don't see 
any really bad contracts on this team. Gorgie Jang's a huge, expensive, overpriced player, but that's, again, on an expiring. I think the Grizzlies are in a great spot. They're just going to need Morant to keep going to the next level, and it's tough for me to see a way for them to add another high-level player because, again, unless that Golden State pick that's coming to them in a couple years uh, turns out to be a real boon for them and give them great value, this is their team long-term. And it's just a matter of how much better can Morant and Jaron Jackson get as their franchise duo. Now we move to the playoff teams in my projections. And the first one I'm going with here at the 8 seed is the Houston Rockets. Now, I put them at 8 because I think James Harden is going to get traded. And I think he'll end up on Miami. I don't think that'll happen before the season. I think it will happen during the season. Now, again, we have a couple days. Maybe it does happen. But if I had to bet right now, I'll say it goes into the season. But in the event that James Harden were to stay on the Houston Rockets... This is a slept-on team. I think, point blank, Christian Wood might have been the best signing of the whole offseason. Getting him in there, three years, $41 million. We saw how just incredible he was at the end of the season last year before, um, before the pandemic hit. And to see him go in there and play one preseason game for Houston yesterday, and to, I believe it was 27-10, and 10, and... I don't think that's really an anomaly because we saw how good he was with Detroit. He looked like a mini-me Anthony Davis. He was efficient. He was shooting threes. He was playing very well offensively in the post, in the interior. He was putting the ball on the floor. He was playing good defense. He was protecting the rim. He was athletic. He was good in transition, good in the half court. He was everything you could want in a 4-5 big. And for Houston, you know, that was a whole process where they traded Covington to Portland for the two firsts, the 16th pick this year, the 21 first. They effectively used the 16th pick to salary dump Trevor Ariza onto Detroit. And that ends up becoming a process where it seems like, okay, they chose the one draft pick getting off of Ariza and the ability to use their mid-level exception over Covington. But then that whole process becomes a signing trade where they can take in Christian Wood and they can take him in at $13 million a year. So effectively, they turn Covington into the 2021 first from Portland and Christian Wood. That's not bad. So moving from there, actually more so than not bad, I think that's great work. I love Robert Covington, but I really think that Christian Wood... I definitely think it's going to be between him and DeAndre Ayton for most improved for this season. Maybe I'm too bullish here, but seeing what we saw in Detroit and seeing that continue in a preseason game yesterday, if this is what he's going to continue to bring, basically being a 21-point-per-game, 10-rebound-per-game, 55% from the field, 37% from three type player who can also block shots, I mean, that that's an all-star caliber player. Now, that's perhaps bullish, but again, I think that that is the upside and potential we are looking at here with Christian Wood for Houston. Now, obviously, we have to look here at the John Wall-Russell Westbrook trade. Westbrook going from Houston to Washington. Houston gets Wall, and they get the 2023 first from Washington, where in basically the way that it's protected, Washington is not going to have to convey a high-level draft pick. So... 
Lottery protected in 23, top 12 protected in 24, top 10 protected in 25, top 8 in 26, two seconds if it doesn't convey. So we're looking here at, no, it's basically prevented for Washington to be giving up a pick that ends up being a very high value. And basically from Houston's standpoint, look, they were going to be hard pressed to find a way to get off of Westbrook without having to give stuff up with it or if they couldn't just get him into a team that had the space at the time. But to basically, they, they were not going to be able to get off of Westbrook without turning his bad contract into another bad contract. So basically they said, all right, we have a guy who wants out. He's on a bad contract. There's another team who has a guy at the same position who on a bad contract who wants out. We're going to have a bad contract on our books either way. We are depleted in our first round pick supply moving forward. Let's add a pick. Let's bring in another guy in the contract Basically, let's just add ourselves a pick and we'll retain having that super max bad contract on our books. And from what we've seen with John Wall in the preseason now is th there's been flashes of the old John Wall. He's looked athletic. He's looked uh, looked like a player that has burst at times, looked like a player who's been rusty at times. But my expectations were pretty low for what John Wall would bring. And I looked at it originally as, all right, it's a bad contract. It's going to be on their books no matter what. They got a pick. Great. Now I see, all right, maybe Wall can be a kind of a percentage of what he was before, and he got a pick, and him and Cousins have obviously wanted to play with each other for some time. He looks good. Cousins looks good, which is tremendous after all that his body has been through. You've added Christian Wood. You still have Daniel House. You still have Eric Gordon. For the time being, you still have P.J. Tucker and James Harden. Ben McLemore, who they re had, they basically reinvigorated his career last year. This is a very good team. Now, as far as their James Harden options, I just mentioned I think Miami is where he ultimately ends up. I think you look at Miami, there's Tyler Hero, there's Duncan Robinson, there's Kendrick Nunn. There's, you know, Miami would have to rework the pick protections with OKC to be able to trade multiple picks far out because, again, their draft pick supply and their ability to trade picks is limited at this point based off of the picks they have going to OKC via the Clippers. But overall, Miami makes a lot of sense. They're not going to get Giannis. The 2021 free agency class, I mean, very rapidly before our eyes here is becoming thinner and thinner by the day. There's going to be a lot of teams with space, not a ton of great free agents, which as an aside, we have a deadline on Monday for the uh, draft class from 2017 you know, with Lonzo and Lori Markin and Markel Fultz and that whole draft class, you know, John Collins specifically there as well. This is with that free agent class quickly diminishing, there is a potential option here for these teams if they don't give their guys an extension and they go out and have great years, maybe we're looking at a 21 offseason where offer sheets are more prevalent than they normally are. But that's an aside. But back to Miami, they've been gearing up this whole time based off of how they sign guys to team option deals for next year, you know, some infl inflated annual salaries like Myers Leonard, big salaries like Goran Dragic where they could either set themselves up to have guys they can trade or to decline options and have expirings come off the books. They were clearly gearing up for Giannis this whole time. He's not going to be there. 
Drew Holiday is going to get re-signed by Milwaukee. Paul George has re-signed with the Clippers. LeBron hadn't signed an extension with the Lakers. We'll see what Kawhi does, but that free agent class is thinning out very quickly. So I think for Miami, James Harden makes all the sense in the world. Now, Toronto, we've seen them do this with Kawhi. Maybe they're in play there. I think they're definitely a dark horse. The, the Sixers thing with Ben Simmons, I, I'm not sure what to think, but it, it seems at this point the Sixers would be unwilling to do more than just a Simmons for Harden straight-up deal. I, I'd be surprised to see them be willing to do Simmons and multiple draft picks. So... You know, the Brooklyn deal, that's basically you're going to say, all right, we're going to get Levert, we're going to probably get Spencer Dinwiddie, and we're going to get every pick under the sun. There's value in that. I really do believe that. But it does not seem like Houston is all that interested in that package uh, because they want a better, young, cornerstone-type player. So I think Miami makes a lot of sense. And you know, head coach Steven Silas, first year on the job here, it's been quite the process to... You know, get this team going, implement your vision, and then, you know, having to deal with is James Harden going to be on this team or is James Harden not going to be on this team? You also look at how P.J. Tucker, he's come up for an extension. There will be tons of teams interested in P.J. Tucker. Looking at a two-year extension, you could probably say, all right, this is a guy you give a two-year extension to at $15 million a year. Will they do that? We know that they don't want to pay the tax. We shall see. But looking again at this team... And looking at their overall offseason, I mentioned how much I love the Christian Wood deal. Uh, Sterling Brown is the guy I've always liked. Getting him in there on the minimum, I think, was a nice move. And then you look past that, David Nwaba, I think, is going to be a guy who... I've liked David Nwaba. He's bounced around at this point. He's dealt with injury. But I really do think he can be a contributing 3 and D wing type. Chris Clemens, you know, it's unfortunate what happened with the injury with him. His salary became guaranteed as a result. They waived Gerald Green earlier. You know, perhaps they could salary dump Clemens onto another team, maybe like the Knicks. But I, I think they do get under the tax as a result of trading Harden. I think that they're going to play a portion of the season with Harden on this team. And for that portion of the season, I think this is a very interesting team. But I think they'll get in the playoffs. I think they'll be the eight seed. And I think they end up dealing Harden to Miami for a package that includes Hero, Robinson, and more. But overall, looking at this team, seeing DeMarcus Cousins and John Wall be guys who are playing at a pretty good level after being out for multiple years is great. Christian Wood, I think, is going to be great on this team. P.J. Tucker, if he's still there, is obviously going to be great for this team. So they'll get under the tax, and it's just really where will Harden end up and just how good can Christian Wood be. Past Houston, let's go to the seventh seed, the Utah Jazz. Currently facing off with Rudy Gobert in advance of the December 21st, which is Monday, deadline to sign the Supermax. Uh, they're offering 28% of the cap in their offer. Gobert wants the Supermax at 35%. But looking at this Utah team, again, they were very close to beating the Denver Nuggets in the first round in the bubble. Mike Conley was very good before the pandemic hit. He was not good in the bubble and struggled to begin the season last year. Boyan Bogdanovich will be healthy and back. He was not in the bubble. Boyan Bogdanovich can take on the offensive load to a very strong extent, can be a very good secondary perimeter scoring option 
And as we've seen when he stepped in for Oladipo with Indiana, and at times last year, he can be a primary scoring option if need be. Rudy Gobert, you're looking at a defensive player of the year caliber player. Obviously, I think it's interesting to analyze what exactly he's worth on a uh, max contract here. I'm not sure I'd be crazy about him at super max, so I'll be interested to see what they end up agreeing to. But just looking again holistically at their offseason, they, the Jazz, basically, they had to get off of some money to be able to full use their MLE. They did the salary dump with Ed Davis to the Knicks, giving the Knicks the two seconds. They did the salary dump with Tony Bradley, where they gave Detroit the 38th pick. Detroit later made the move they did with Bradley and Zaire Smith. And then they re-signed Jordan Clarkson. Again, as I mentioned earlier, they were able to bring back Favors. Um, And then looking just overall, I think the Favors deal made sense. I think the Clarkson deal made sense just in terms of what their value was in the open market and what they paid them. And giving Mitchell the MAC extension, there, there was no negotiation there. So bringing it all together, they gave up the 38th pick in two future seconds to get off of Bradley and Davis to be able to use the full MLE. And they brought back Clarkson with the bird rights and then used the full MLE on Derek Favors. So I think that's good work. Um, I, I think that with the Jazz, you look at this team, they're deep. They're defensively sound. I, I think, though, for them to really go deep and be a, a true force in the West, they're going to need Conley to play at a high level on a sustained, consistent basis. And they're obviously going to need help from Bogdanovich. Because without one of those two things, I don't see this team being able to make it past the first round. And I think that kind of can separate them from being a top five team in the West to a team that will be lucky to get out of the first round. Again, as I mentioned, I am fascinated, fascinated by what the Rudy Gobert contract will end up being. I think they'll settle somewhere in the middle, but again, we only have a couple days to figure that out. Again, then the Supermax is gone after December 21st for, you know, until after the season. But looking at this team again, I mentioned the depth. I like them bringing in Yuduka as a through the draft. And then you look at just, again, Shaq Harrison. Shaq Harrison, I, I was surprised that the Bulls uh, didn't give him a qualifying offer, that they brought back Denzel Valentine doing so, but did not for Dunn or Harrison. I would have for Harrison. For Dunn, all right. If they don't want to, they don't want to pay him essentially the room exception for two years. They have Kobe White, fine. But for the minimum that Shaq Harrison got and the fact that you know, I, I just think they should have kept Shaq Harrison, given him that qualifying offer, brought him back. Good use of roster spot there for the Jazz. But again, just looking at overall, you have Conley, you have Mitchell, Gobert, Bogdanovich, Ingles. Joe Ingles is awesome. Clarkson, Royce O'Neal uh, to fill that 3 and D role. Uh, again, Favors being back. Favors is a perfect fit there behind Gobert. Not together playing at the same time. So again... It really is just contingent on can Conley play at a high level consistently and can Bogdanovich stay healthy. If one of those two things doesn't happen, this team is a first-round exit team. So solid offseason. They had to do what they had to do maneuver-wise and shed seconds, but I think they had a very solid offseason, and I don't think any signing they made between Clarkson or Favors was too high. And again, I think they got better, but again, remains to be seen what they get out of Conley and Bogdanovich.
Moving past Utah, let's go to the sixth seed. Perhaps the team had the best offseason in the West and maybe in the whole NBA, the Portland Trailblazers. The Portland Trailblazers, first they go out and they make the trade for Robert Covington. The 16th pick this year and the 2021 first, that's a great trade. Covington is on a super team-friendly deal. The ideal 3 and D team or 3 and D player for a contending team. You know, not the, I guess, most elite on-ball defender, but as far as a help defender and disrupting passing lanes and deflections and steals, oh, he's tremendous. And to add him to this team and to bolster that three spot, which was a weakness for them last year, and then to see them overall, they go out there, they bring back Carmelo. You know, seeing Carmelo take that reduced role where this team is a lot deeper and last year, where a big problem for them was this team did not have enough depth. Carmelo re-signing, he's not going to have as big of a role, but again, this team has more depth, and they get Carmelo lower down on their bench. That's a great move, especially from what we saw from him last year. Moving past that, Harry Giles is getting him on the minimum. I'm not sure what the path for him is to getting minutes on this team consistently, but he's one of the best passing bigs in the whole league and was tremendous in the preseason for them thus far. So again, having him as a depth piece on the minimum, tremendous. Rodney Hood, I was actually surprised by the deal that Hood got, a two-year deal for $21 million, especially coming off of the um, torn Achilles injury. I wasn't sure what the market would be for him. I thought it would probably be slightly below the mid-level exception. So I think he got more than I expected, even though the second year is non-guaranteed. But... To see him get that much, you know, I hope he lives up to it. He's a great player when healthy, but off of a torn Achilles, that's a great, great deal for him. Then, of course, with the mid-level exception, Jarek Jones Jr., again, going back to, all right, the three and the four, that was a weakness for them last year. And Jones, again, athletic, defensive type, plays above the rim. And he, he mentioned specifically, there was a piece about his overall free agent process. He thinks he can bring more in an offensive sense. And I thought to bring him in there on the mid-level exception at a two-year deal made a lot of sense for what this team needed. And again, adding depth where it was needed overall for the team last year and a position of weakness for this team last year. Ennis Cantor, effectively, they just were able to bring him back just for being part of the deal with Boston and Memphis. Now, we know Cantor's deficiencies on the defensive side of the ball, but as a backup, he played very well for Portland in the past. I love the move. Effectively, they just got off of Hazonia and got Cantor. You take Cantor over Hazonia every time. You know, I, I'm intrigued looking at this Portland team. One, what what happens with Gary Trent and his extension that he is going to be eligible for to sign? So looking at Gary Trent, it's kind of the same boat that Devontae Graham is in with Charlotte, where these guys just played absolutely tremendous, tremendous this past season, Trent said he's not going to sign an extension with Portland, but you look at what he would be eligible for, you're looking at what would have been at this point $53 million for four years on an extension. I don't blame Trent for betting on himself and going out into restricted free agency because, again, as I mentioned, if he plays like he did last year, if this free agent class continues to dwindle down, there's going to be teams flush with space, and he's a very attractive option as a 3 and D type who can score, play defense, play the 2, or play the 3. Nasir Little. I think Nasir Little, again, I don't know how how we see consistent minutes from him with the depth this team now has, but I'm high on Nasir Little. I'm high on Anthony Simons. 
and believe that he can handle the responsibility of being the primary backup point guard behind Lillard. But you have Yusuf Nurkic back. You know, Zach Collins, they're not pursuing an extension with. I, I like Zach Collins, but I think if you could play a five-man lineup where you're playing Nurkic and Covington at the four, and then you have Trent McCollum and Lillard, I really like that five-man group a lot. And then you move past that, there's so much optionality in the five-man groups they can roll out there. They could put Covington out there and Derek Jones Jr. out there. They could put Covington out there at the three, Collins at the four. They could put Covington at the four, Carmelo, or excuse me, Covington at the three and Carmelo at the four. There's just overall a lot of optionality here. And again, we look at what was this team's weakness last year? It was depth. This team did not have enough depth. They played very well in the bubble, but throughout the course of the season, and obviously injuries were a part of this, this team was not deep enough. This team now, I mean, you go down the list. Lillard, McCollum, Covington, Nurkic, Hood, Jones, Collins, Cantor, Simons, Little, Giles, Trent. You're double digits deep. And I could very easily see this Trailblazers team being as high as third overall as far as seeding is concerned in the Western Conference. They went in there and they said, all right, we need to add at the three, four spots, the tweener wing spot, and we need to add depth. And you would have liked to have gotten that Trent extension done, but again, I don't blame Trent for betting on himself whatsoever. I would have done the same thing. I really think that you look at this Blazers offseason, and are, are they a team that can make the conference finals? I'm not sure, but I think they have a chance. I, I think they're a second-round playoff team for sure at this point, but... I just think when you want to look at an offseason and say, all right, they took advantage of all the avenues they had to add to their team. They made good signings for minimum players. They brought guys back. They made good use of their mid-level exception. They addressed their big needs. They added where they needed to. This is a defining offseason for when you want to say, hey, attack your needs and do it aggressively and in a smart, sensible fashion. And that's what they did. So overall... I have no problem with trading two picks for Covington. No problem with the MLE going to um, going to Derrick Jones Jr. Pretty pricey in Rodney Hood, but again, it's only guaranteed for one year. A-plus offseason for the Blazers. I could see them being anywhere from three to six. Now, let's go to the five seed for right now, and I have the Phoenix Suns. The Phoenix Suns had a tremendous offseason. Outside of their draft where they picked at 10th overall, you know, if they could have gone in there come out of that with Tyrese Halliburton, that would have been tremendous. Now, obviously, I know they got Chris Paul, they have Devin Booker, but the value there would have been very, very strong. They came out of it picking uh, Jalen Smith, which he's a guy who's really a five. They basically picked a backup at 10th overall. I wasn't crazy about that. But looking at this overall, the, the Chris Paul trade was great. Chris Paul is going to unlock DeAndre Ayton, who had a good season last year, I think DeAndre Ayton's going to win the most improved player of the year this year. I really do. I think he's going to have a great offseason, or great offseason, a great season. And I think what Chris Paul's going to do is, between him and making looks for Booker even easier to come by, Chris Paul is going to have a very strong effect on this team like he did for OKC last year. They had the ability with the Paul trade, if they delayed it a little bit, to retain you know, up to, I think it was up to maybe 18 or 19 million in space and maybe be a player for Gallinari because their big need was at the four. 
like stretch four tight, but they made the trade right away, which is fine. And they go out there and they sign Jay Crowder three years at the mid-level exception. And in terms of fit, that might be the best signing of the whole offseason. You look at this lineup. It had Paul, it had Booker, it had Bridges, it had Aiton. They, they, with their bird rights, they were able to keep Dario Saric. But they needed a guy at the four. A stretch four who could play tough defense and shoot well from three. Now, Crowder's been streaky depending on what team he's been on from three. But we saw how we've seen for years. And we saw it in the finals this past year in the Heat's run in the bubble. Jay Crowder's a great guy to have on as a veteran at the stretch four spot on a mid-level exception type salary. And that's exactly what they got there on a three-year deal. And I think that unlocks, you look at this team, Bridges and Crowder defending on the perimeter. What a great combination. And then you look at this team again, we mentioned depth. You have Crowder, Aiton, Bridges, Booker, and Paul. Jalen Smith, you picked him at 10th overall. He's backing you up. You lost Aaron Baines. Brought back Dario Saric on a three-year deal, basically the mid-level exception. Um, if he were to be out there in the market, that's what the dollar value was about. I think that's very reasonable. I was intrigued to see what his value would be as far as his second contract. That's about what I'd feel comfortable doing. Cameron Johnson, they picked him early last year, but I think he's a guy who come off the bench at the four spot and shoot threes. He had a good season. I expect that to continue. And then we look, we look at Javon Carter on a three-year deal. I look at Javon Carter and De'Anthony Melton as being linked as being part of that... Um, that deal where D'Anthony Melton was involved and the pick, I think, with Jared Dudley and whatnot. But we look at the deal they gave Javon Carter three years. I thought that was good value also. But I want to focus on their minimum signings. Etwan Moore and Langston Galloway, those are guys who are going to contribute. They're going to shoot. They're going to play defense. And in Galloway's sense, he's going to handle the ball. These are guys who are going to contribute and are veterans who have been around the league for a long time as you're looking to contend to be a top five team in the West. At minimums, you could do far worse. Those were great signings. And then Cameron Payne, Abdul Nader, Damian Jones, I, I didn't really get that one. But overall, this team has depth. This team added a guy in Paul who's going to unlock so much for other guys on the team. Made one of the best fit signings of the whole offseason in Jay Crowder. Retained Dario Saric. Retained Javon Carter. Made great minimum signings in Moore and in Galloway. That's a big thing I look at with these offseasons is how can you best leverage your ability to sign minimum players and I think you look at the Blazers and you look at the Suns and they did tremendous tremendous jobs with signing veteran minimum players who are going to contribute and provide value in areas of need so overall this is an A offseason for the Suns if they had made a better pick at 10 A plus but overall I think this team could be as high as three again frankly I think it's pretty fluid from three to six as far as Clippers Spoiler here, the Dallas Mavericks, the Suns, and the Blazers are concerned. I think those teams are in a tier of their own with the Nuggets in a tier and then the Lakers on the top tier. So overall, great offseason for the Suns. And I think their bubble success, I don't think it was an anomaly. I think with adding Paul and building off of that, I think the value is strong. I think this is a team that could win at a high level here for this next two or three year window. And then we'll see what moves they have to make after that. But just a tremendous, tremendous offseason. Let's go to the team I have at fourth, the Dallas Mavericks. Mavericks clearly came into this offseason. They said, all right, we want to add three and D wings who can play with a little bit of ruggedness, a little bit of toughness, can shoot, and can be off-ball guys around Luka, and we want to shed salary for 2021. Now, they did that. Unfortunately, Giannis signed the Supermax, but 
They traded Seth Curry for Josh Richardson and what became Tyler Bay. They drafted Josh Green at 18. They traded DeLon Wright and Justin Jackson and got James Johnson. They drafted Tyrell Terry to replace Seth Curry. They re-signed Trey Burke for three years. You have seen in preseason how good Josh Richardson has been as a fit next to Doncic. Off the ball, if he's just saying, all right, I'm a catch-and-shoot three guy, and I'm a defense guy. A guy who's a three and D, high-level player who hits threes at a high clip off the ball from Doncic, I think it's a perfect fit for him. He's a good player. The fit was just not great with the Sixers. And I think they clearly went out there, they had this idea in mind, and they executed. I think Richardson, that trade is going to be tremendous for them. And you basically look at it as, all right, they lost Seth Curry, but in that mold, they still have uh, Trey Burke. Now Tyrell Terry, they have Jalen Brunson. They added Josh Richardson, Josh Green, Tyler Bay, James Johnson. Still have Tim Hardaway Jr. Still have Dorian Finney-Smith, Maxi Kleba, Dwight Powell, Willie Cauley-Stein, obviously Porzingis. You have depth here. You've added some toughness. You've added defense on the perimeter across the two to four. And... I really look at this team and I think that if you look at overall in the West and you look at what the Mavericks were last year, I think that this team is a little bit is better than the Mavericks team that we saw last year on paper. And I think Wesley, I wonder who they signed on a two-year deal. Uh, basically, again, if it works, great. If not, no big deal. So that was just a nice, sure, why not type of deal. But overall... I, I know that part of this strategy was, okay, we're going to make ourselves player for 2021, but if Giannis had not signed the Supermax, this might have been one of the best off-seasons out there also because they made their team better for the season and shed salary to be able to be more active in 2021. Now, we'll see what happens then. I'd suspect with Richardson most likely opting out, if he plays this well throughout the season, they're going to want to re-sign him. I think he's a great fit there. But you look overall at the West... You look where the Mavericks were for the season. They were really in that middle of the West standings throughout the season. And I think they got better. And I think Phoenix definitely got better and Portland definitely got better. I think Utah got slightly better, but not by a significant margin. So I think that bumps Dallas up. And I think Dallas, you can look at the West and say, all right, Dallas had one of the best off seasons in the West. I think the four, five, six teams I just mentioned, Dallas, Portland, and Phoenix all did themselves such an incredible service this offseason. I think this team makes more sense. And you look overall, I really think that if you were to throw out a lineup out there, you know, we'll see what they do as far as off the bench um, with Cauley Stein and Powell and who plays first. But if you could roll a lineup out there with Kleber and Porzingis and Hardaway and Josh Richardson and Doncic, that's a really strong five-man group that I really like. So... I can't say enough positive things about this Mavericks offseason. Next, we have the Los Angeles Clippers, who, you know, I, I thought they were going to win the championship last year. It did not work out. We've seen, you know, Doc Rivers no longer being there, articles that have come out with chemistry being off and comments and whatever. We look at their offseason they had. They lost Montrez Harrell, Montrez Harrell going to the Lakers. They go out, and with the mid-level exception, they sign Serge Ibaka. And in a way... I think Ibaka may be a better fit for them just in terms of providing, you know, we saw Harrell in the playoffs. You know, he, he at times was just not playable in the playoffs. 
and Ibaka, you're getting that steady 3 and D veteran presence. I think in the playoffs, that'll be more helpful for them. Um, you look also, they lost Jermichael Green. Jermichael Green was a solid player for them, but then they also retained Marcus Morris. Marcus Morris getting that four-year deal for $64 million. That's the type of deal where I remember when the Knicks still had him, they were talking about that would be about what they would be willing, or not willing, but that would be about the market to re-sign him. If you're a competitive team like the Clippers contending for a title and he's your fourth best player, fifth best player, sure, you're over the cap anyway, you sign him, that's fine. If you're signing Marcus Morris to that much and he's one of your best players, your team's going nowhere. But for the Clippers, they had to keep him. I thought that was a great signing. Um, even though it's a bit pricey, but overall, again, you're over the cap anyway, and you had to keep him, especially having lost to Michael Green. I want to touch on the draft on the draft night trade they made, where they traded Landry Shamit and a three-way deal, obviously, with Detroit and Brooklyn. But they traded Landry Shamit and ended up with Luke Kennard and four for second round picks. Now, when I first heard that, I was like, all right, I like Landry Shamit. He's a great three-point shooter. But in Luke Kennard, I'm not the craziest about Luke Kennard, especially with his contract coming up. But Luke Kennard, at least, he's a guy who can create more offensively and is less, I guess, limited in his offensive game, where Shaman is more or less just a sharpshooter, which is fine. But I think you're giving yourself, I guess, a little more versatility and playmaking ability and overall offensive, I guess, an overall offensive skill set in getting Kennard. So as a one-for-one -one swap, I think that would have made sense. But then on top of that, you're getting in there multiple, multiple second-round picks. So they're getting Portland's 2023 second and Detroit's second from 2024, 2025, and 2026. To get four seconds on top of that is tremendous work. I, I think that it makes them slightly better. And again, you add those draft picks, it's a clear win of a trade. I, I think also looking at this team... I'm not crazy about Nick Batum at this point. We'll see how much he actually has to contribute to a team. I'm not sure it's much. But again, at a minimum deal, why not? I actually like the move they made with the Knicks trading a 2023 second to get Daniel Oturu at the 33rd pick. I think he's a guy who can be a long-term bench player in the league as a big. Overall, I look at it like this. Not a ton of stuff. You know, there is stuff floating out there about, oh, maybe they'll trade Lou Williams for, you know, a, I think it was... Dallas is picking about 18, or maybe they'll trade Lou Williams for um, the 19th pick or whatever. They kept Lou Williams. They lost to Michael Green. They lost Montrez Harrell. They brought in Serge Ibaka. Largely outside of that, they're the same team. So if Kennard can stay healthy, I think he's an upgrade over Shamit, just for in terms of he brings more than just the shooting ability. Um, Abak, I think, will be better in the playoffs than Harrell. Losing Green does sting a little bit. I, I like Jermichael Green. He was a good fit for them. I, I think overall, even though that Morris contract was pretty sizable for them, you got to do it to keep him. And then, of course, the Paul George extension getting four years, $190 million, on top of what he already has. They had to keep him based off of the haul they gave up for him, and he's a tremendous player still regardless of what he does or doesn't do in the playoffs. It'll be an albatross in about four years, but it also precludes you from having traded all those unprotected picks in the trade with Shea Gilgis-Alexander also going and Danilo Gallinari also going. It precludes you from losing, you know, potentially both or one of him and Kawhi, and in the event that Kawhi leaves, losing both of them, and then you have no picks moving forward and you lost your two superstars. That would have been the nightmare scenario. By extending him, they avoided it. So... 
I think what the Clippers do need, though, I, I think a, a Zubac is a solid big, but I think it would be nice to see him improve a little bit more. I, I think you look at uh, Cabin Gelly, you look at Terrence Mann. I, I don't think Oturu is going to be a guy that they give opportunity for to get consistent minutes, but Cabin Gelly is in his second year. They traded a pick to get into the first round to pick him. You'd like to see him be someone who can contribute for them. I think Terrence Mann could if they give him an opportunity. So I'm interested to see if you know, Zubac and those guys, Zubac can improve, those guys can be contributors. And then overall, when it's playoff time, how much of a difference Ibaka makes being there rather than Harold. Now let's go to the Denver Nuggets. The big thing with the Denver Nuggets, losing Jeremy Grant, Grant going to Detroit on that three-year, $60 million deal, rebounded pretty well. They brought back Paul Millsap on a one-year deal at about $10 million. They brought in Jamichael Green for uh, a two-year deal, basically at the mid-level exception value. And, you know, I like Jeremy Grant. I do. But $20 million a year is, again, I know they're, they're a team, though, with Denver that they don't like to pay the tax. $20 million a year for Jeremy Grant is a lot, especially when you can bring in Green at effectively the mid-level value. So it, it stings to lose him, but is it a huge loss? I'm not sure that it is. Uh, they brought in Fancudo Compazzo, who I think will be a useful player for them off the bench um, in a backup point guard role. Um, we'll see. You know, Will Barton was not a factor for them in the bubble. Will Barton has said he does not want to be a sixth man for this team. We'll see when this team is fully healthy. You know, How does this starting five shake out? How does Barton stay and be happy with his role? I think when you look out for this team, they have to give Michael Porter. I know the defensive deficiencies are glaring. But they got to give him the chance here to be the third star. Offensively, he he can be very quickly, if not this season. But I think they got to give him the chance to be that. And even if the defensive defensive deficiencies are what they are, you at least have to give him the chance to improve on that side of the ball as well. You look at them in the draft. They drafted Zeke Nodge with their own pick and then traded the 2023 lottery protected first. That's now with OKC to get RJ Hampton. They converted Bull Bull from a two-way contract, uh, extended Monte Morris, three years, $27 million. Isaiah Hartenstein they signed to a multi-year deal. I actually like that deal. I think Hartenstein can bring some value as a backup big in this league if given a consistent opportunity. So overall, they still have P.J. Dozier as well, who played for them pretty decently as the season wore on, and they dealt with injuries and Barton and Harris being out. I think when you look at this Nuggets team is what they consistently do is they take advantage of guys who have, or take, all right, let's rephrase that. They take advantage of, in the draft, players who have high upside, they slip. The Nuggets go in there and they capitalize. Michael Porter, Bull Bull, RJ Hampton, maybe in this year's draft. Now, Bull Bull, we know the deficiencies there on the defensive side of the ball. He's long and can rebound and can block shots, but defensively, you know, he's not a good defensive player. Offensively, he is gifted. They got him in there at, what, 44th a few years ago. They got Michael Porter when he fell to uh, 14th in the draft a couple of years ago. RJ Hampton was a guy who'd been hyped up as a top 10 lottery level talent for years. He fell to 24. They got in there and picked him. You know, we'll see what his upside is, but if you told me in three years he's a starting level player, I wouldn't be surprised. And overall, I think if you look at it this way, 
They lost Jeremy Grant. They brought in Jamichael Green to replace him. They drafted a big in Zeke Nodge. They signed Isaiah Hartenstein. They have Bull Bull now, not on a two-way, fully converted to an, uh, to a normal, I think it was two years, at about $4 million total. You look at this overall, I think that they're a team who, they're never going to use the full breadth of their options in an offseason just because they want to avoid the tax. That's just been shown based off of their actions historically. They were in discussions for Drew Holiday. That didn't come out uh, for them. But I really do think that if Michael Porter can become that true third star, and with the depth that this team has in place, you look at it, you have Jamal Murray, who in the bubble, I mean, he went from a good player who's probably not going to be an all-star to if this guy plays like this consistently throughout the season, he's a perennial all-star. You have Monte Morris behind him. Again, a great find in the second round. You sign Campazzo. You have Gary Harris, who had a down year last year. We mentioned Will Barton. We mentioned how now at the big spot, you have Jokic, you have Hartenstein, you have Najee, you have Bull Bull, you have Paul Millsap, you have Jermichael Green. So all of a sudden you have a lot of depth there. We mentioned the three uh, three point guards. You have Harris, you have Barton, you have RJ Hampton, you have Michael Porter Jr. You have PJ Dozier. This is a deep team. And they take advantage, as I mentioned, of these high upside opportunities in the draft. It's just a matter for them of if Michael Porter becomes fully what he can, then and Jamal Murray can play as he did in the bubble consistently throughout the season, then man, that's a true big three right there. And they have all this depth behind it to support it. So it's really dependent again on how much better can Porter get? Can his defensive deficiencies become less glaring? Can you keep Will Barton happy in his role? And how do these young guys play when given the opportunity? I think they had a very good offseason. And losing Grant Hurst, but I think Jermichael Green's a great rebound. And I really look at this Denver Nuggets team, and I think they are a conference finals team. I know they came back a couple times from being down 3-1 in the playoffs, but I really look at this team, and this is a conference finals team in my opinion. And then lastly, we have to look at the reigning, defending, undisputed champions, the Los Angeles Lakers. Monster offseason. They got better, and they won the championship last year. They replaced Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee with Mark Saul and Montrez Harrell. Montrez Harrell at the mid-level exception. Marcus Saul, they had to maneuver a little bit, trading out JaVale McGee, attaching a second, sending him to Cleveland to be able to have the room to offer Gasol a two-year deal. They re-signed Contavious Caldwell-Pope. They re-signed Markeith Morris. They replaced Danny Green with Wesley Matthews on the biannual exception, one of my favorite moves of the entire offseason. They replaced Rajon Rondo with Dennis Schroeder, who was tremendous last year off the bench for OKC. And then just their overall maneuvering with the cap and the tax and whatnot. I mentioned trading McGee, being able to give Gasol a two-year deal. Getting in Alfonso McKinney, who'll take up a roster spot for them in that deal. They waived Quinn Cook and then brought him back on a non-guaranteed deal, so they only have 13 guaranteed contracts, giving them the ability to add two more guys. They're always going to be a top buyout destination. They have the ability to sign two guys at minimum, or at the minimum. You look at what they signed Contavious Caldwell-Pope for. I thought that was very reasonable. 
And I, I think now what's interesting is a couple things. We've seen Taylor Horton Tucker in this preseason be tremendous. Could he be a guy who could be a contributor for them as well and make this depth even more profound? Another thing is, what happens with Kyle Kuzma? What does an extension look like for him? What is his value if they were to move him? I'm very intrigued there. I don't, I don't really know if there's going to be a match there as far as what he perceives his value as and what his value is to this team. So I'm very intrigued to see if that's an extension that can get um, can get done by the December 21st Monday deadline. If I had to bet now, I don't think it will, but we shall see because, frankly, I'm not sure what you would even value Kuzma at. And if you're the Lakers, I, I think that value, I'm not even sure what that value is from their standpoint either. You look at this team holistically now, and I, I just think that between having been so good last year, improving at so many different spots, retaining so many players, you have so many options as far as the five-man groups you can deploy. You want to go out there and you can throw in Gasol, Davis, um, Matthews, Pope, LeBron. You could put Schroeder at the one. You could do Schroeder and you could do Pope and you could do LeBron and you could do Davis and you could do Harrell. It's, there's so many options out there for this team as far as the five-man the five man groups they want to run out there. They have depth, they have a ton of optionality, and they're better than they were last year when they won the championship. Personally, I like the idea. Again, they played this a lot, or did this a lot last year. You play LeBron as the de facto one. You play Davis at the four. I think Gasol at the five with his defensive ability and passing is going to be extremely valuable for them. And then you have Matthews as a better version of Danny Green at the three, and you have Pope at the two. Or you play Schroeder off the ball, and you bump Pope down to the three. You have plenty of options, and you're better than they were last year. They were able to get LeBron on that two-year extension. Davis, I was surprised at Anthony Davis signing a five-year extension rather than a short-term one to get to the 10 years for the max at that point. So not only did they improve their roster from last year, maneuver the cap and the tax very well, they were able to extend LeBron for two more years and get Davis for five years when I thought, like most people did, it would be probably a two-plus-one or even a one-plus-one. So again, I don't think any deal, I don't think the Pope deal was egregious. I think it was fair value. They got better. I really like Gasol at the five for them. I really like the idea of playing LeBron, Pope, and Matthews, or LeBron, Schroeder, and Pope with Davis and Gasol. And as a whole, it's hard to improve so strongly from when you win the championship to the next year. And they did, especially when you're so limited financially. So. Tremendous offseason for the Lakers. You have to look at them as the championship favorite, bar none. And with that, that will be all for this episode of After the Final Whistle. Here again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Be sure to check back for more episodes here on podcast.com. And as always, to you, the listener, follow me on Twitter at Brad Clear. Underscore Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. And as always, goodbye and good night.